0: So today we have Dr. Dara. She is a pediatrics resident somewhere on the West Coast. We're very grateful to have you on today. We'd like to hear what it's like to be a resident. So maybe just to start, if you wouldn't mind kind of telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to how you kind of got to where you are today.
1: Dara, if I could just add a little piece to that. Um, if you could kind of share with us um, some in- influences that you feel have Uh, kind of guided and influenced the direction that you've taken? Those could be people, events, experiences, whatever.
2: So I grew up in Iran um, until the age of 15. I moved here for high school. Neither one of my parents went to college. They didn't have the opportunity to go to college in Iran. By the time they graduated high school, war broke out between Iran and Iraq, and all universities shut down. So they never got that chance. So they moved us here in hopes that we'll have a better future and be able to pursue what we actually want to do. But I've always wanted to do something that I'm really passionate about. I know that work for some people can just be work, that it's like something that makes them money so that they can live their life. And I think that's totally valid. I personally want my work to um, bring me joy and I don't know, I want to get satisfaction from my work. That's really important to me because so much of my life will be spent working. So I wanted to do something impactful. Took a lot of different classes in high school, college credit classes. All of my favorite classes were my science classes, like biology, human anatomy. I just love them. I think medicine is so interesting at every level. So I shadowed doctors and when you shadow attendings, they ha- they live a very different life than You don't see what they have to go through to get there, but it was amazing. I actually shadowed, the first physician that I shadowed was a pediatrician, and I I loved her work, I loved her patients, so I decided to go to med school. I did a combined BAMD program, so I got my bachelor's degree and medical degree in six years, and then I decided to do pediatrics because I just think it's, such an innocent patient population that you can never even like if your work environment is really abusive even if you're super tired is you can you can't give up on, on a kid that needs you and i think that passion keeps me going and i'm very glad that i chose pediatrics for that reason
1: when you were in medical school what would you say were the really inspiring positive experiences and what were the experiences that were discouraging and super challenging.
2: The most inspiring parts of medical school for me were the friends that I made. <laughs> I met such incredible people in medical school that I don't think I would have met in otherwise if I like would have gone to a normal college. A lot of people talk about how I missed out on the college experience, but I, I think while that's true, I met people that are so passionate and went into medicine for all the right reasons. And I think just like being my best friend that I lived with for six years is one of the most passionate people that I have ever known. And I think just being around those people that are so intelligent and passionate and love what they do was the most inspiring part of medical school. The worst part about medical school? Almost everything else. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think just, you know... The constant feeling that you're not good enough, um, even though you're sacrificing everything you have, and being treated like that. Going to my clinical rotations and not having the opportunity to actually participate in patient care as much as I would have liked to. Now that I'm on the other side of it and I'm a resident and I have students that come work with me, I totally understand why I was being treated the way I was being treated, but as a medical student, it, it's really hard to be in that position. You just feel like you're constantly bothering someone that's drowning by just even being there. And it's your time, too. You know, you're spending, these are, like, a lot of people are in their, I don't know, 20s, 30s. Like, these are some of the best years of your life. You're spending your time here in the hospital. You're you're spending so much money for every hour that you're there. And yet, you're ashamed because you're trying to take away time from someone that's obviously drowning. I see, so I think that was one of my least favorite parts of medical school was bothering residents. <laughs> and now that I'm a resident, I really, I, mean, I really see it from the other side. It is really difficult having medical students sometimes. And I love teaching. I've always wanted to work at a teaching hospital. I think it's so powerful to, to be in a position where you can have a say in how future physicians are trained. But it's still, like, even with how much I love teaching, it's still really hard sometimes in residency.
1: Is the difficulty figuring out the balance in how to kind of focus on what you need and your priorities and at the same time be generous to these students?
2: The difficulty is there's no time. Something that people don't realize is when other And I I don't want to generalize, but I think like maybe a lot of other jobs when you work 40, 40 hours or when you have like an eight hour day that you go to work, I feel like you're maybe you're not actually doing a lot of mental work during those eight hours, like not the whole time, maybe like five hours of it, four hours of it. But I feel like in residency, if I'm there for 12 hours, I am mentally and physically working for 12 hours. There's, there's no pause. There's no breaks. There's so much that needs to get done. We're all at capacity to be able to pause patient care and know that I have like these 20 other things on my to-do list that I have to get done before sign out and still take time, like one hour, I don't know, even 30 minutes to talk to a medical student about something. It can be challenging sometimes because that sometimes that can mean I'm gonna have to stay even longer after my shift to get certain things done. And we just can't do that. <laughs>
1: yeah. How are you finding your residency? What what has kind of shifted inside of you internally now that you're well into your residency?
2: I started residency. And I don't think that everybody goes into medicine for the same reasons, but I personally started, I went into this field really wanting to um, have a positive, positive impact in some way and really wanting to help people. And I think the more I understood how residency works, how much of it is financially oriented, how much of it is not about my education or patient care, but money. I think for a while that actually, like, residency brought out the worst in me because in the beginning I was not going to my shifts thinking about the end of my shift. I was going to my shifts excited to take care of people and to learn and to maybe, like, make someone's day better that day. And I think that shifted to I would start my day thinking about how can I get through this as fast as I can and just get out of here. Um. And that's something when I started residency, I told myself, I never want to be that person. <laughs> but I do feel like I definitely shifted into being that person um, by the time I started my second year. Now I'm working on getting out of it and going back and remembering why I'm doing this. And I do think it's helping. I think those like daily rem- having those daily reminders for myself is definitely helping and focusing on Trying to focus less on everything toxic that's around me and more on why I'm here and why I want to get through this has been helpful. So I'm trying to get out of the toxic mindset.
1: <laughs> Dara, that's really powerful that you keep that dialogue alive like that. And because it's a very dynamic uh, internal dialogue as you're navigating through this experience. And that's a, it's a really powerful self-guiding tool to keep that conversation alive because it is continually shifting. And it is really interesting when we're going through a very challenging experience in life when that requires a lot of discipline, a lot of rigor, even causes us to question our abilities to have that kind of centering conversation. Um, I really deeply believe that's where resilience and conviction live, is is inside that conversation that's really elegant way the way you framed it, that when you kind of look back a few years ago i don't necessarily want to put i mean it could be anywhere from 3 to 5 years how has your philosophy or your values have they shifted would you say um, to where they are today do they seem different to you
2: my values in medicine about medicine,
1: uh, yeah, and just kind of about uh, life. I mean, obviously, medicine's going to be a big piece of your life, but how has your philosophy or values shifted? In you know, generally speaking, if they have,
2: I think. Well, I'm trying on maintaining my values, but I don't think my view of the world has shifted because of residency. Residency is such a concentrated center of negativity and i just have to remember that life is not all negative life is not all positive (laughs) even though most of what you see every day here is negative this is not all of life this is not even majority of life it's just so concentrated so i'm trying not to shift my values we see in pediatrics we see so much so many things that are so negative we deal with child abuse we deal with rape in children We deal with children dying or children that were previously healthy coming in and having had something traumatic happen to them and now knowing that they're going to go home and they're never going to go back to who they were before and they're going to have very serious long-term complications and that's really hard to see in, in children. We see like all of those parts of society every day And I think that's had a negative impact on the way that I maybe view people sometimes. Also, the way that residency is structured, like I said, like so much of it is um, motivated financially. um, That has also shifted my view in a negative way. But I also kind of feel more motivated Mm -hmm. to make change because there is so much change that can be made. I think every little thing that you do matters, and every little thing that you do, every day that you go to work, can have an impact.
0: So I'm really glad that you actually brought up what pediatrics is like. Um, I, I think the cons- the, there's a misperception in the medical field that uh, pediatricians uh, just, you know, deal with only the positive, benign aspects of medicine and humanity. And the reality is that you see some of the worst aspects of humanity. Like you said, child abuse, sexual assault, neglect, you name it, it comes to you, especially when you're training in like a bigger urban center. So there's one component of significant darkness that you have to deal with. And I do wonder if you're given training to be able to process that in a healthy way so that it doesn't take a toll on you. And then there's another component of just the hours and the rigor. So can you just m- maybe help take us in a little bit deeper into what it's like to, to be you in this role?
2: I think as residents, were treated like robots. We're expected to perform like a robot. There is a certain number of patients that you have to go through in a given amount of time, and each of them has a lot of things that needs to get done before the end of your Shift. There's no time to process your emotions. You go into one room, you deal with child abuse, you come into that room, you have no time to process it or think about it, you go to the next room. And by the end of your shift, when you go home, you're so exhausted. Um, You're hungry, you have to shower. (laughs) So you just barely take care of your basic needs. You go to bed and you do it again. There's no time to, first of all, process it, but also learn. Once you have processed it, learn how to deal with it. I think like, if anyone is considering to go into medicine, it would be really beneficial to learn like CBT and all of those skills beforehand because um, once you're in it, you're just you just kind of have to keep going. Every now and then, when when I have a break and it's like a couple of days that I it's like my vacation and I haven't done anything, it's it it just all came comes comes to me and it all hits me at the same time. Thankfully, I I have been working to ha- you know have the skills to cope with these things in a healthy way. But I know a lot of people um, in my residency, outside of my residency, especially in surgical fields, that have not and have and don't have healthy ways of coping with these things and no um, drug use, alcoholism can be common among residents for these reasons, which is something that patients don't see.
0: Are you provided any formal training or guidance in terms of processing the emotional or psychological aspects of Mm -hmm. what you deal with?
2: No, there's no formal training. Sometimes we have like um, wellness lectures where or they talk about all the wellness activities we're going to do. It would be like, oh, we can, you know, have this certain afternoon that we'll buy you guys dinner and we'll go to the park, something like that. And it's a lot of times it's just more time taken away from my time and it's just more work. But there's there's no official training on how to deal with yeah, with trauma. We, we deal with trauma every day, but we don't know how to, um, actually, you know, process it or handle it.
0: Wow. So when you said that on the days that you have some time off and it all comes out, can you just describe for us a little bit deeper what that means for you?
2: I mean, I, I, have had days where it's, it's hard, it's hard to get up in the morning. Um, (laughs) um like there's nothing wrong in my personal life or I can't pinpoint what's wrong or why I'm I'm upset but it just life just feels wrong um and I'm I have a lower threshold for responding to things that are like you know that are supposed to be just like little annoying things and then you know I just remember the things that I've had to deal with that week. And then it it makes sense that I feel that way.
0: I just want to take a moment here to just validate what you're going through and um, to let you know that you are not alone in feeling that way. I myself have struggled with the exact same thing that you're describing is, you know, going through something really difficult and then when you have time off, it just all of a sudden just hits you like a brick wall and you have no idea what's going on or why or even how to process it. And you just feel so isolated. And sometimes I felt like I couldn't even tell my family. And it's not their fault that they don't understand. It's just that they don't have to go through what we have to go through. And the physicians that we've had on the podcast so far, I've really been blown away at how common the sentiment that you describe is. So point is, you're not alone. And you have a very, very difficult job. The other component that I'm curious to hear about is what it's like for you when you're on inpatient service. And what the hours are like, what the expectation are like.
2: We we log our hours and we break duty hours. If we work, we are average for four weeks. Can't be more than eighty hours, but on average, we do work close to that. We regularly work twelve days in a row, um, and we're there from six a.m. to. It's supposed to be 6 p.m. but normally ends up being 7 p.m. because you have to give sign out. You have to make sure everything's wrapped up for the night team. So, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of times it ends up being not exactly 80 hours but pretty close to that. But because it, the average is not above 80 in four weeks, then it's never addressed. It's not a problem. That's that's the only time it's a problem. And I think, like, it can be very, besides being emotionally Draining residency can be very physically draining because sometimes we work 28 hour shifts and it's nice when you get to sleep on those shifts like even a couple hours is really helpful but there are times when you don't and you are awake and working for 28 hours. There have been times that when in like the next morning so I go to work and I stay until the next morning and the next morning we have to round on patients. There have been times when I'm rounding on patients I feel like I I'm in a lucid dream. Um, like things around me don't feel real. I find that I find that extremely abusive, and I don't. I know that it's not something specific to my residency. It's something that I think almost all residencies have.
0: Tom, I would love to hear your um, thoughts here. And I'm just curious to know how this is kind of landing with you in terms of the content of what she has to go through and also the time constraint and psychologically what that does to a human being.
1: Yeah, as she was talking, it's not new information to me, but I'm really hit on not just a professional level, but a deep personal level. Like when you hear... About a per, even though you understand it, you know it, you've seen it, um, I've lived with it, and how alarming, disconcerting, and kind of odd I am every time I hear it. It, a couple of things stand out Uh, for me and my work across industries. I'm, it's, uh, and it's not just inside of industries, it's a cultural pattern in the way that we, allow a pattern to evolve, and this is definitely getting better uh, than previous generations in medicine, Uh, the internship and the residency and the fellowship experience. I think we're trying to find a more holistic approach to developing really gifted physicians without destroying them in the process, but it really reflects back how we have developed a tolerance for really unhealthy patterns. And then we sort of institutionalize them, and then we license them, and then we create a whole belief system that, well, this is the way it is, and this is the way we have to do it, and this is what creates a good doctor. And the fact is, when you step back from it, you realize how incredibly flawed it is because we haven't had the courage at a leadership level to really transform it. So that's kind of a little bit of my professional perspective. On a personal level, I really appreciate what Dara said. Um, One of the things that I find in my work is people will initiate a conversation with me and they'll talk about something that they're planning to do, you know, uh making a professional move or, you know, advanced education or whatever that might be. And one of the things that I realized is the best thing that I can give that person is for them to really ground themselves in healthy level of expectations around what they're going to experience. I know particularly, I think going into medicine, you requires a certain level of giftedness intellectually and and a certain giftedness in conviction and commitment and uh, discipline. So I, I think it really does ask you to pull on things that um, I think may be innate to you. I really appreciate what Dara said uh, when people talk to her. I would never want to discourage anybody from pursuing their dreams. I do love the idea, and it's a practice that I try to encourage other influencers and people that are guiding other people's lives, is to help not encourage them to either do it or not do it, but rather to prepare themselves for the journey so that they can find ways of self-care, they can be both courageous and graceful with themselves. I think one of the most powerful things, and I really have seen this in my work inside of healthcare and medicine, is the courage to challenge things in the moment. It requires a lot of courage when you're standing present with something that is very toxic or abusive And how do you bring a courageous voice? And that is the one of the things is the belief that you can have a voice during a period of time that you don't think you have any political or Mm -hmm. formal power. And I do think that we are living in a society right now where these power structures are falling apart. And the thing that I am really doing, and I think we all can do is to really encourage people to bring their voice, because that's the only way change happens. And we can frequently sit on the sidelines and think, well, this is going to change. It has to change. The question I am always asking myself, how am I a catalyst for its change? And I think the more that people bring their voice to these experiences, such as Dara is doing right now, these are the things that will stimulate change.
0: I think it is incredible that, that you say that. And the reason for that is because Dara has taken – certain steps to do things that I think would be unthinkable for most residents. Right. Right. Would you mind sharing with us, Dara, what those steps have been?
2: Well, I just, I just, I have a lot of friends in residency and, you know, outside of my own residency. And I just hear, you know, like we all have very similar problems. And I feel like all we do, especially in pediatrics, is complain to each other. And nothing ever changes. Nothing ever gets done. So I, 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 I don't like that. I want to have productive conversations with people. Um, so I just started writing, like when we were just you know like out for dinner with my co residents and everyone's just complaining about how you know how how all the ways they were abused that week. <laughs> um, so I just started writing those things down, and I you know, created emails and documents about people's issues and what most of us are struggling with. And I communicated those things to our program leadership. And we had discussions with them, with our whole class, about, you know, some of the changes we can make, the pros and cons of them. All I can do as a resident is talk to people in other residencies and how, like, see if they are any better or worse in that like particular area that we're trying to address and if they are better like bringing that idea to to mind but like we are so limited on time (laughs) that for us to have all these problems and have no time to deal with them but also have to brainstorm all these other ideas to like improve our residency it's just a lot and I think residents have all these problems but they're also so sleep deprived and they're so low on time and energy that outside of work they don't want to think about work and having to organize these meetings and having to write down all these problems and communicate it with leadership and doing all these things is just more work it's thinking more about work your work in the two hours that you have to not think about it um, and I think that's a major contributor to why it hasn't changed that much. We just kind of like show up the next day and we get through it and we just don't want to think about it when we don't have to. So I, th- I want to change that as much as I can. I have friends in residencies that are unionized that really love it <laughs> um, and get a lot of benefits from being unionized. So I'm trying to organize for my own program.
0: I think that is a huge deal.
1: It is a huge deal.
0: Huge. The courage that it takes is unbelievable. I'm I'm so. I mean, I mean, this is the first time that we've met, but I'm so proud. Oh, thank you. Because I I know exactly what you mean. When you're out of work, all you want to do is just sleep and forget about it. You do not have anything left in, in the tank. So for you to take the time outside of work to change the working conditions just speaks volumes to who you are because the other thing is you're probably not going to see the benefit at all. You only have one more year of residency left, really. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to see the change. And and what most people do is they just suffer through it and they say, well, whatever. I just, I'm just i just going to survive and and I'm not going to change anything, which is why we are where we are because people aren't doing what you're currently doing, which you have the courage to do. So you're doing it for the next generation.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because... I just feel like your intern year, you don't really understand what residency is about. You don't understand everything that's wrong with the system. You're intern year. By the time you become a second year, that's when you start to understand these things. And that's when you have to start the process of organizing and organizing takes a long time and it's a lot of work. And you realize by the time you do that, you're out of residency. So yeah.
0: And on top of that, (laughs) you probably get demonized to like, to a certain point because then you're seen as like the problem child. Mm -hmm. Um, but what, you're the problem child because you're sick and tired of seeing yourself and your colleagues suffer needlessly? Somehow that makes you the problem, but that's how they're going to treat you,
1: I'm sure.
2: Yes, yeah. We have to definitely keep it a secret for as long as we can.
1: So you just exposed a really insidious pattern one of the things that I, um I've, I'm always fascinated with how innovation and change happens. And one of the things is that it requires a profound level of courage and deep ethical conviction at a leadership level to really initiate true change. What happens frequently is how we love to bureaucratize and complicate change. And what it actually is, is it's a a human construct. If we complicate it, we make it slightly out of reach, then we don't actually have to be accountable for it. So it's fascinating. And I will watch institutions, you know, bureaucratize and belabor and complicate and act confused around the issues going on but in fact what that is is just a defense mechanism that allows us to just keep pushing it out and the reality is and i find it fascinating frequently i'll go in and watch the analysis paralysis and the question that i will frequently pose is is there actually any confusion around what's going on here Because everybody wants to act confused. And the fact is, there is no confusion. We've been watching this for decades. We know what the pattern is, and we know the implications. The question is, are we going to have the courage to do anything about it? So, I say that with a lot of passion, and I don't say it with any cynicism. What I love about what Dara is talking about, and... And I think it's this really gets down to our moral, ethical, or spiritual journey, whatever, however you want to describe that. But to say, oh, this is really interesting. I can make a difference right now, and I may not benefit from it, but I love the idea that I'm going to contribute to something bigger than me. And it's an interesting way the way Dara talks about her mission in medicine, and particularly working in pediatrics, is to try to have an impact. In a way that is going to affect the next generation. And I really believe that is what our calling in humanity is about. The thing I don't want to be flip about, and I have said this, I'm thinking several medical students that I've spoken to recently, is to find the courage to bring our voice to situations in the moment. One of the things that we understand, not just on a psychological level, but we understand it about all living systems is that there are moments. I call them the moment of fertility. These are very fertile moments and these moments are actually where the change actually happens. And so how do we, how do we inculcate a medical student or a resident, um, into, accessing moments of courage to use their voice. And this here is where things are going to start to shift is as that courage starts to show up. And so I realized there was a big shift for me professionally when I realized it wasn't my job to go in and rescue everybody. I used to think that was what my work was about. And I realized, no, it's about helping people access their voice the courage, the clarity, and the ability to stand in the truth. Yeah. And I really hear that in the midst of this conversation.
2: Yeah, I think there needs to be a huge shift in the culture of medicine. I think there's this men- yes. there's toxic... I think this mentality is toxic, but I think there's this toxic mentality among older physicians that because I went through this, so should you. And I want right. to change that to... I went through this and I don't want you to. <laughs> and another thing is you're seen as a good resident if you just do your work, you listen to everything they say and you don't complain and if you have to stay longer, you stay longer and the the less you stand up for yourself, the better of a resident you are, the better of a doctor you are because it's glorified to constantly be making sacrifices for patient care Um, and they frame it that way to make you feel bad if you don't make those sacrifices because we're already making sacrifices at baseline by just showing up to work and working in that environment and those hours is that's our for the amount that we are paid um, it's already a huge sacrifice so expecting us to go even beyond that and not calling us good physicians if we don't i think is incredibly uh, manipulative Mm -hmm. And I think it's something, it's a culture that only benefits the administration and the CEO and the people that are making money (laughs) off of residents, but it does not benefit the physicians or the patients. So, Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, breaking the cycle of the abuse becomes the abuser. There's a thing in developmental psychology when we look at the stages of development of cognitive development, of emotional or affective development, of ethical development, um, and it's breaking out of this pattern that a lot of get caught in. And and the way that you framed it, it's a it's a really wonderful, simple, and elegant way. There's a stage in our development called scorekeeping. It's where We, when something bad has happened to us, well, it happened to me, so, you know, I can pass it on. And it's that insidious repeating of patterns that never elevate us beyond the past. Um, It's where an argument never stops or we keep retaliating. But yeah, it's about how to break this pattern in a way that we can start to elevate and understand that not only does it not compromise the development of turning out brilliant physicians, but we actually turn them into more whole human beings as a result of it. Wow, what a gift that would be. Rather than stripping them of their humanity. Exactly.
0: Um, Dara, I'm very moved by the conviction that I hear in your voice. Would you say that what you're currently doing you are maybe there's a component of fear while you're doing it that you are maybe afraid of what the consequences could be for you
2: yeah definitely Mm -hmm. i think every time you stand up for something you um you make enemies (laughs) and i think in residency like as a resident you are you i don't know if it's just a feeling or if you actually are but i feel in a powerless position a lot of times um, because so much of our job is just to say yes like you put in the orders that the nurse wants you to and you you know you do the work that the attending wants you to and so much of it is not doctoring it's just saying sure and doing it in a timely manner it can feel very powerless so to you know like you said having a voice from that position it's it's scary because you are you know you're talking above people that have always been above you
0: How do you find the courage to persist?
2: It's, it's more important to me to fix something, try to fix something or move it in the correct direction. I don't think I'm going to fix residency, but to push something in the right direction um, while I'm in it, than it is for me to just get through it and start my, I don't know, nine to five job or whatever I'm going to do afterwards. Like, this is why I came to medicine. I want to create change when I can. So this is my number one priority. If, you know, I'm if I make enemies on the way, then that's okay.
0: And what has been the response from your co-residents? Have you um, encountered people that maybe didn't support your cause?
2: Specifically in the pediatric field, people have been very supportive but also very scared. I'm getting a lot of like, hey, make sure if you send this email or you say this, that you don't include me in it. Don't make sure it's anonymous. Um... And I don't blame anyone. I think like we all we all need to get you know, needing to get a job after we graduate from residency. Some people want to go into fellowships, and having connections in medicine is so important. And you don't want to be known as the troublemaker. Okay. So um, I don't blame blame people, but yeah, people are afraid. I am afraid, um, but it's I mean, it's more it's it's important to me. Like the fear doesn't stop me because it's really important to me. <laughs>
0: I just have a couple comments here. I've been in private practice now for five years, and there's two things that I would like to share with you. One is that in this life, nobody will save you. It is incumbent upon the individual or the community or the group of people to save themselves rather than hope that somebody's going to swoop in and do the difficult work for them. Nobody's going to save you but yourself. That's not to say you can't do it without a community. I think you should do it with a community of people, but it is incumbent upon you to see that change manifest it. The other thing is what what you describe, and that I frequently see in physicians, is a fear-based mentality. Mm-hmm. We are afraid. And one of the reasons that we're afraid is that because we are conditioned to be afraid. Mm-hmm. From the moment you step in, you are judged, you are closely scrutinized you are corrected, your behavior is guided, you're told what to think, how to feel, and then when you suffer, you're told, if you feel suffering, it's your fault. When I look at the resources that um, address physician burnout on very well-known medical societies, they tend to blame the physician. They say, well, a way for you to get over your burnout is to have a barbecue with your friends go and get some physical exercise. Yeah, but you see what you're not doing is you're not taking responsibility as the organization, as the hospital, as the residency program, as the broader institution of medicine. What you're doing is you're putting the blame on the physician. It's your fault that you feel the way you do. And that's a theme. And so we are bred to feel fear and we're bred to live in fear. And the response that we have is we're just going to keep dealing with it and hopefully it's going to go away. It, it is kind of like being hit with, with like a hammer and all you just want to do is just hide in, in a shell and just hope that the shell can just like absorb the shocks and it doesn't just permanently damage you. All we do is hide. What I have learned is that the same fear-based mentality that we see in a residency doesn't stop there. Once you come out into the quote-unquote real world, the same people the same mentality. I frequently wonder why physicians don't unionize, or at the very least, voice their concerns. It seems to me that there is almost a self-sacrificial component. I think we have to realize that it becomes difficult to take care of others when we struggle to even take care of ourselves.
2: The personality that goes into the medical field most of the time seeks approval. And we're so afraid of other people not thinking we're perfect angels. And the thought that if I advocate for better hours and better benefits might make people say, oh, are you here for the benefits or are you like just lazy? Yeah, I I think that's another shift that needs to happen. And the more people that talk about it and the more people that address these things, I think um, the more people will, will have the courage to do it.
1: Absolutely. I was just thinking, Kiev, as I was listening to you talk, and then Dara's comments there, the fundamental thesis that we're pulling here is really standing, not in a combative stance with fear, but standing and looking at it through a courageous eye. So it's not the absence of fear. And it's a kind of a distorted thing that we've gotten in our culture. Uh, We've distorted our relationship with fear and the fact is it's a real experience and the act of courage is not the absence of fear. It's the ability to move in the face of fear. I mean, that's that that is the fundamental universal profound truth around it. The interesting thing is that as we start to develop what I call a healthier relationship, one of the things that happens is it's almost like a virus. It starts to subside in us. It no longer holds us prisoner. One of the things that I always like to remind people is that what fear does is that the minute we're in a state of paralyzing fear, we project into the future. And it's very interesting when you look at the narrative, we always project loss. Like, oh, if I were to raise this, it'll ruin my career. Or oh, if I raise this, I'm they're going to be my enemy if I raise this. So we always project loss out onto something. And the reality is that's all fallacy. And that's how the story, the insidious story keeps getting pulled forward is that the fallacy now becomes reality. And in fact, it's never really been tested. And so this ability to start finding a courageous voice to start testing and pushing back on these fallacies it's interesting i wrote here as i was listening to dara talk when we demoralize and shame another human being the very thing we're trying you know when we think about we're trying to put these really fantastic physicians out into the world but what we're going to do is we're going to damage them And we think by demoralizing and shaming that somehow that builds character and strength. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it doesn't. What happens when we challenge, we hold to discerning accountability, we pressure test resilience. When we do these things to actually build that muscle tone in, rather than tear it down Mm -hmm. it's a very interesting thing isn't it
0: that's such a good point you know the uh the component that i find fascinating here you know tom when you talk about shaming is that when you were a medical student dara you felt that maybe you were shamed by the residents at certain times and now as a resident you can understand why a little bit because you're under so much pressure I guarantee you that when you're done with your training and you become a attending, you'll feel still the same way. Even even we feel the heat and, and that heat just kind of trickles down. And so this is a much broader problem. This is not just medical school. This is not just residency. This is certainly not just your residency. This is physicianship as a whole on a national level. Everybody is feeling the pinch and we're all hurt by it and we keep propagating it. And something has to change. So I'm so inspired that you found this uh, very heroic means of kind of getting there.
2: Yeah, I I deeply believe that things that happen to you in life may not be your fault and they may not be fair. But if they are happening to you, they are always your responsibility. Mm. And... Mm. And I think so much of residency is unfair <laughs> and not my fault. But because it's my life, it is my responsibility to do something about it.
0: You know, the other thing, too, is that, Tom, I, your your point of demoralizing a physician in training does not make a better physician. And I think really what we're saying here is that we want to have physicians that are aware, that are conscious, that are present, that are emotionally in tune with themselves and their patients who provide the highest quality of care for their patients and who can do it in a compassionate and genuine way. You are incapable of doing that if you yourself are hurt and traumatized and you haven't been given the space or the time to process it. So really what we're saying is we want the quality of physicianship to improve. But to do that, we need to first address these fundamental root cause problems. And until we do that, this will just keep going on. So when somebody hears you talk, I really just want to make sure that people aren't, you know, they're not perceiving you as being lazy or that you don't want to work hard or that like you think somehow like you have a good, because I'm sure there are some physicians that say, well, I've gone through this, so you should too. And you should just, you know, shut up and take it. But the point is, do you think that's a healthy perspective to have? Do you think the way that you interact with other human beings is healthy? And so we're trying to promote the health of this environment for us.
2: I think, no, I think it's a major contributor to why people that go into medicine with the goal to help people end up only maybe caring about the money. And you're just under pressure. And it's not just... You know, it's it's everybody. You're under pressure by the administration. You're under pressure by the, your attendings and the nurses, and even your patients, because there's this m- misconception that physicians just le- live these wonderful lives and have so much money. Um, I don't. A lot of people don't even know what a resident is. They don't. <laughs> they don't know how much we work and that we get paid less than minimum wage. Like, if you have a family in residency, it is. I don't i don't have a family in residency i'm barely supporting myself with like rent prices in california i don't know if you do have a family i don't know what what those people are doing um i've heard from a couple of residents that they have their significant other support them through residency um so you're but like that's not that's not something that your patients know and you know the way you're treated by everybody is just that everyone's just expecting from you and everyone is expecting you to do your best and be your best at all times not knowing how many how many other ways you're being pulled and i think yeah i mean demoralizing and all of dealing with all of these people treating you and seeing you this way every single day changes you and it's normally not in a good way <laughs> and makes you you know it takes all of your passion away changes your job from your passion to just something really difficult that I need to get through so that I can one day, you know, have one peaceful day. And I don't want that to happen to me, but I, you know, I see it happen to almost everyone around me.
0: I am now just genuinely curious to get to know you a little bit more as a human being. Have there been certain life experiences that you have had that have been transformative for you, that have helped you hone these strong internal characteristics?
2: I think my parents, I think coming here from Iran, I mean, Iran is going through a revolution right now. I'm seeing... And I, I've been in those protests, not not the one that's currently happening, but this is not something that's new in Iran. Iranian people have been protesting for years, um, and at the age of 14, when I was still in Iran, I was going to protest myself. I have seen people get shot on the street, and I think I, my, I know how much courage my parents had growing up, and um, it's it's inspiring. And I see people in Iran speak up for their rights, knowing they, they will get, they can get murdered. And it almost feels, I, I, I feel like I would feel ashamed if I knew that I could speak up against something that was wrong. And if I didn't do it, because yeah, while I'm, you know, I might create enemies, I might lose some connections. Um, but I'm, the things that I, I will suffer here are not nearly as close to what people in Iran suffer. From. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I think Iran has been, um, very inspiring to me.
0: Wow. That is so moving. I mean, to hear yeah. that you've been at protests, you've seen people shot that your country is currently going through a, a revolution.
1: Yeah. Dara is, um, uh, you're doing something that is uh, a really sort of profound element of, of, of our human journey, uh, because courage isn't a f- switch that gets flipped. It's literally a deep muscle in our character that has to be exercised. And one of the things that I've been fascinated by it, throughout my entire career, like what are those fundamental foundational characteristics that really create a a foundation for us to actually build a robust, flourishing, transformative life? And this is definitely, without a doubt, one of the most powerful ones. Uh, When we exercise it, there's a profound gift in it because it has a redemptive quality. It has a self affirming quality about it when we exercise courage. I think it's rare to ever hear anybody regret having acted with courage, true courage. Now, it's different. I I would say punitive action is not a courageous action. You know, when I think about the demoralizing, kind of demoralizing and shaming behavior that can go on, for instance, like in 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 medical school or specifically in a resident program that's actually cowardly so i would stand in front of the face of all leadership that adheres to this kind of a pattern and it's profound cowardice there's nothing courageous there's nothing heroic inside of it it's patterns of cowardice behavior uh and what one of the things that when we ask humans I think the thing that terrifies us the most is to have our integrity challenged. And when I look at integrity, I see a different kind of pattern. How do we create these training, these professional programs that challenge, hold people accountable, test their integrity and their convictions, and have them find the resilience to go through that there is a life of integrity. And so what we're looking at is the difference between cowardly leadership and integrous leadership. One of the things that I've really been fascinated by is when people act with courage. Um, and, And I feel like my 30 years, I do not see people getting fired or destroyed when they act with true integrous courage. People don't get fired from that. And so I like to really pressure test the fallacy that we have around pushing through our fear in these moments and bringing our voice to the scenario that can start to help change things. And it's pushing through this, this distorted narrative in what it means to act with courage.
0: Dara, what are some of the um, changes that you think could be made to make a residency um, a little bit more palatable?
2: I think treating residents like they're humans. We need to be able to sleep. A 28 hour shift, should, I don't think that should exist for anybody. <laughs> I think maybe not expecting residents to work 12 days in a row, 12 to 13 hour shifts and be present for all of those hours remembering what residents go through and that they are in training and this is a very difficult part of their lives and regardless of who you are and what your role is in the hospital to be respectful nothing makes those 12 hours worse than being in a toxic environment when where everyone's just yelling at you and expecting things from you and doing it in a disrespectful way so much of residency is dehumanizing. And I think just taking those aspects out I still, you know, would be really helpful. I still I don't think, you know, I still think residents will work a lot of hours, we'll see a lot of patients, you're trying to gain as much knowledge and experience in a limited amount of time, but it it has to be within what a human is capable of <laughs> without becoming mentally unhealthy.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because we need we need our clinicians to be resilient to be able to handle stress to develop the confidence to be in the moment in a crisis to use good judgment so yeah all of that muscle has to be pressure tested but you're absolutely right there's a point where we actually start to destroy the muscle rather than build it
2: right and i think sort
1: of a physiologic metaphor
2: yeah um and i think having training to deal with trauma would be helpful
1: mm-hmm. yeah
2: like we have i mean we have noon conferences so there are um lectures that we get that are a part of our workday i don't think we should have anything beyond your work hours it should be incorporated in your training
0: mm-hmm. the other thing is uh, getting um you know professional therapy could be rather expensive and when you make what a resident makes it might not even financially be feasible mm-hmm. So um, do you think it would help if residency programs incorporated some kind of formal therapy?
2: Yeah, it would definitely help. Um, We only get access to like three sessions. So I think having better access. Wow!
0: (laughs) So they pay for three sessions and then you're on your own? Yeah. Tom, what are your thoughts about that?
1: I know. well it's i i love what we do in the west and particularly in the united states i mean i look at this at a lot like i look at all of the dei all the diversity inclusion and and equity work that's going on Is you know we're coming to terms with this deep uh insidious damaging pattern that we've carried through our uh, sort of all, all colonized societies but you know, so we throw training at it. We think that that is systemically going to take care of it. And I love these things when we when we understand the power of mental health and that when a person has this mental and emotional resilience in them, they have the ability to function in a more robust way. Oh, wow. What if we just made that a deep resource available to them without boundaries so they could access it as they needed it? Oh, no, we're going to give them a little allowance over here. So it just shows the institutional, what I would call coward, cowardice and blindness and lack of kind of integrity in showing that kind of an alarm. It almost to me, when you don't really deal with something at a systemic level, you actually can do more damage to it. So one of the things that I've said a lot to institutional leaders is that if you're not going to take this seriously and really drop down and address these fundamental patterns, but you're just going to tease it and kind of do a bit of it, you will actually do more damage because it's what I call an artificial promise. And we know that what that does to psych- to people psychologically is when you put a promise out, but there's actually no integrity in the promise. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that, that this does is that it it actually can do more damage than good because there's actually no integrity behind it. But it looks good on paper.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so true.
1: Many many, th- many things look good on paper, yeah. but in reality, ah, there's no structure, there's no integrity, there's no substance to it.
0: Uh, one of the harsh realities of residency is that because the question would be, well, why Why are hospitals incentivized to push residents to the breaking point? Because it doesn't really benefit anybody, really, does it? Um, You don't want a generation of physicians to be pissed off and miserable, but there is a certain financial benefit to having residents in a hospital setting. I'm not going to get into the details of it. Suffice to say that for a hospital system, there are some practical considerations here that may help explain the current state of affairs.
2: That's very true. I think when we when I work long hours, when it's long hours of patient care and learning, even though it's long hours, I I personally still enjoy it. I don't want to glorify that. I I still think it should be, you know, <laughs> reasonable hours. But what's really exhausting is when you're just doing what feels like other other people's has work and so much mm-hmm. in residency is that cover other people's shifts when they can't make it you're doing things that are not medical like i don't know per- um, scanning things and filling out documents, or we cover nights on services because the nurse practitioners on those services said no to covering nights. They said they would not work there if they had to cover nights. So, the the first answer was like, "Oh, no problem. We'll get the residents to do it," and we just have no say or control over our our lives. <laughs> I I think that's one of my biggest problems with residency is. Every week of my life, the way it's going to look like, it's just given to me, and I have no say in it. And if I'm thinking, oh, tomorrow I'm going to be in clinic, but if they need me to cover something because someone called that sick, or if the hospital is being drowned in patients, then I could get pulled into doing something I wasn't expecting. If I thought I was going to work eight hours today, I might actually work 16. And I just feel so out of control of everything that happens in my life.
0: Wow. Yeah, that uh, lack of control is a very uh, disconcerting feeling.
2: Yeah.
1: Talk about commoditizing <laughs> humanity, huh? <laughs> when we look at, I've really been sitting with, I mean, throughout my entire career, looking at how the power of diversity and what it does. We understand how it works in all other living systems. So if we look at diversity, we look at equity and we look at inclusion. And it's really fascinating when uh, the principle of equity, the, the principle of fairness, uh, when it is embedded in a culture, the implications around it are so profound and transformative. It's mind boggling. Um, I'll give you an example. I was one of I had a client. It was a huge physician group, and they instilled. They wanted a they knew that their culture was the most powerful thing that they had. It it worked on retention, they could recruit the best physicians in, and they could keep their practice healthy and vibrant and sustainable. And one of the things that I thought was a really powerful practice is that they embedded fairness throughout the practice. So when it came to schedules and holidays, it wasn't about seniority dictating, but they said we are going to we're going to have a sense of equity and fairness that runs through this and not have this kind of outdated model of well you got to put your time in if you ever want to have that and as a result what happened is there was more grace in the practice and there was this level of generosity like people would just cover each other and they would have their backs and so there was just this sense of fairness and generosity if i had to come up with one word Hmm. i would say creating a culture of generosity but look at what happens and what dar is explaining it literally becomes a high level of competition where everybody runs around protecting themselves because there's such a lack of generosity inside and it's fascinating that's such the implications of that what it does to the sort of the culture or what I like to think of the immune system of the institution.
0: Well, wow. there are places that that actually do a pretty good job with training. Um, where I did yeah. my, where where I did my fellowship I thought was just exceptionally good because even as critical care fellows we were doing uh 12-hour shifts which is like pretty much unheard of like you said you would do like 30 36-hour shifts. So as critical care fellows we were only doing 12 hours at a time and the schedule was essentially three Uh, three days of 12 hours, followed by three nights of 12 hours, followed by two days off, which is very reasonable. And what I found was that as a resident, I was, we were, you know, we would have like, you know, truth, 36 hour shifts in the ICU. And what I found was I would just want to run away from the ICU as a resident. I was just in survival mode. I had no connection with the fellows, with the attendings. I just wanted to just get out of there. Um, and then, but as a fellow, I felt so connected to the other people there and I was motivated to learn like just above and beyond. And I was inspired. So my point is, Tom, just like you said, you don't need to beat somebody down to make them a competent clinician. In fact, it's quite the opposite because we are all intrinsically motivated. As long as you don't put a boot on our neck, we will be motivated and inspired to be the best that we can possibly be.
2: Yeah, I think that because our rotations alternate between fast, between like really difficult and easier months when you do more outpatient. Um, And even on, on our outpatient, we get pulled in a lot to cover things. But on the days that it is actually outpatient and it's like a little bit lighter and I actually have time to talk to my patients and connect with them, it is it's so much I think it is those moments that um, help you say keep stay sane and keep going, and it's it's when I have that schedule that I have time to actually think about. Oh, this is why I'm doing this. Like these are the things I should do to keep myself healthy and you know keep my values. But when I'm doing really hard rotations back to back to back, I don't have time to think about any of that. I do really believe that I'm a better physician when I have more time to, you know, sleep and exercise and think about my emotions. Um, yeah, so.
1: Kev, yeah, I love what you just said and, Dara, the way you framed that up. You know, when you really stop, and I love the idea of uncomplicating things that uh, that don't need to be complicated, there's this very interesting thing, you know, any one of us could ask, am I inspiring you right now to stretch so in training, and we've all been through training and professional development. And one of the things that I know that I look for for myself is I want to be stimulated to stretch, to go into the uncomfortable place, to go into that place where I feel insecure, because we know we don't grow this metaphoric muscle without being stretched. The flip side is, am I being demoralized? Am I being punished? Are they trying to damage me or are they trying to inspire me to stretch? And that's a very powerful place that every single person, particularly in a leadership role or any kind of institutional responsibility to just stand in that truth for a moment. Am I passing on the abuse now because I went through it or am I shifting this and building a deep sense of esteem an inspiration into this person to stretch. Because that's what we're really asking is for you to stretch. Yeah.
0: Very, very good point. So, Dara, you know, we've had this incredible conversation so far, and I just want to hear from you what it's been like to share with us everything that you've shared with us today. I mean, how is it landing with you?
2: Um, some parts of it were a lot more emotional than I thought it would be because a lot of the things that I talked about are things that I have just been thinking a lot about, but not actually verbalized and verbalizing it made me realize how much, how much deeper they are.
1: (laughs) That's great. Wonderful. I, I just would close out. There's, there's a lot of topics that frequently come out of a conversation. And then when you just kind of quiet a little bit, the mind, Hmm. And you look at what was a core thread that ran through this and one of the things that really stands out for me and what you just said is the power of voice and you gave voice today you gave voice that had deep humanity that had integrity and that had courage in it and when we give voice to something um we feel it differently than just an intellectual exercise
2: yeah verbalizing these things and being heard helps
1: that's that's
0: kind of what i'm realizing in this process is sometimes all we want is just to be heard we just want to get it just out yeah and we just want to share it it has been a real pleasure to sit and uh, talk to you today i am genuinely inspired by your character (laughs) and your spirit so um, i hope that when people hear this conversation they can kind of get that from you too I think that courage is contagious.
1: Um, Indeed it is. I
0: hope that comes across.
2: Thanks for doing this.
0: Thanks for joining us. We will be back in just a moment for a conclusion.
1: evocative and somewhat uncomfortable conversation. Exactly the conversations we need to be having right now. I want to remind the listener there are two core things going on. One, we're really trying to highlight, illuminate outdated patterns of institutional abuse, methodology, ideology. This is not to demonize any institutions, but to really start to illuminate conversations that can really start pushing for substantive change um, and really challenge things that are extremely outdated and actually really damaging. And although we're highlighting individuals that have been through medical school and residency training, this is not exclusive of medicine. Medicine is a a wonderful example of this, but there are lots of high-impact careers and professions that very much experience this pattern within their professional training. The second thing that we're really exploring is the individual personal journey that we're all on as we navigate these challenges and how do we build resilience and how do we build renewal. So as you're listening to Dara's story, I want you to place yourself inside the deeper aspects of the narrative and the patterns and the, and the things that she's talking about. This is not about whether you're a physician or not.
0: Sitting in her presence and having that conversation with her, uh, when we when we first came in, I just thought, you know, we're going to have a conversation with a resident and um, it'll be nice and, you know, we'll learn something. But the way that I left feeling was motivated, inspired, and that surprised me a little bit. And the reason that I felt that way is because she is trying to do what otherwise feels like the impossible. She is trying to create a union at her residency program where she is currently a resident in her second of three years. So if she is successful, it's not going to even benefit her. And she doesn't let that stop her. And what moved me was the courage that she has because she knows the risks And she feels the fear, but she's going to do it anyway. And it just made me feel like, how could I possibly not support this incredibly powerful human being in this journey? And it made me question, are there certain things that I am fearful of that I allow myself to hold back because I'm afraid of the consequences especially if it's something that is meaningful and powerful and necessary. In a way it's a call to to action. And I guess the broader message that pertains to us, you know, not not just as physicians but as human beings in general is that the big things are made of the little things. So Think of all the little things that it took for Dara to get to this point in life where she is attempting to move a mountain. And, you know, we are what we repeatedly do. So excellence is not so much one action as it is a repetition. So if in these little choices in life, if if in the day-to-day, if, if in the small things you choose fear, you choose smallness, And the grand scheme of things, that's going to be the theme of your life. So I think we have to choose courage and it's a choice. And so that's what I kind of got from it.
1: Boy, I I couldn't uh, extract any deeper meaning out of it than that. I realize, not just for you and I, as we host a conversation such as this, but for all of our listeners, this word courage and And uh, navigating fear is is such a prolific narrative through our society. We hear about it as children and as we continue to integrate it within our adult lives. I really try to bring it back so that it's something we stand with uh, really mentally and emotionally so we're really present with it. And I know the last thing we want to send people off into the world with is any cavalier attitudes around the experience of fear and the act of courage. It's a deep, as you mentioned, it's a very meaningful choice that we make to step into it. One of the things uh, that I think is more clear than it has ever been culturally with everything that we see unfolding for ourselves across our culture is that we have a tendency to kind of project things out that, oh, we should do this and they need to do that. We have a tendency to kind of dump stuff into the collective thinking that the collective is somehow going to organize itself and just run with it. But the fact is the collective is made up of individual actions. Any movement, evolution, start with a simple act. Uh, revolutions have started with a simple act. And I think as people venture off from this episode and they start walking day to day in their lives, I have a simple strategy that I want to tee up for you. Battling fear isn't some grand heroic gesture, but it's the ability to move into conversation with it in the moment. And here's a very simple filter to start playing with. When you find yourself backing away from something that you know is wrong, or it needs attention, or it needs to initiate change around it, what if you were to pose the question to yourself? No judgment, no shame, no guilt, but just were to ask yourself, right now, somebody should say something. Someone should raise their voice. Someone should initiate a conversation about this. Very simply, what is keeping me right now from being the person to initiate that rather than being the person waiting for someone else to do it? Pose that question to yourself. That is the first step to step into courage. It is not the step to get rid of fear. It's a step to step into courage. Go out there and put your skin in the game. Do not sit on the sidelines. Thank you. So
0: that's the conclusion to this episode. Um, we would like to just tell the listeners out there that we want you to feel comfortable reaching out to Tom and I. If there is a topic that you're passionate about, if you would like to provide us feedback, if there is something that you feel like you would like to even share on the show, you can reach us for now through my email that I've provided in the show notes. We would like to build a community. And so we would like to hear from you, the listener.